Our, uh, our sermon text this morning is Matthew 28. Uh, we have come to the end of our look at the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to, uh, to, to turn with me there. Matthew 28, the final chapter, we'll, we'll read the, uh, the 28th chapter in its entirety. Let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. From the very beginning of our history at CPC, even uh, before my time, the practice has been to preach a series uh, for, just a, for just a season. And uh, what, I, what I'm getting at here is we want to give you a balanced diet of God's word. And so you know, during the year, we want to spend some time in the Old Testament, some time in the New Testament, maybe a timely topical series sprinkled in. Uh, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because my first sermon, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, came almost four years ago to the day. Folks have come and gone. New faces are just joining in the end. And only if you've been here for all four years will you get the final exam that you will need to pass. But in all seriousness, I, I hope you have been blessed, however long you have been around, by spending time with Jesus. I've said this before, it's not that the four Gospels are more of God's Word than any other part of the Bible, but they do stand out as exceptional books for the simple reason that we spend time with our Savior Jesus. 
And that means something because he brings this kingdom um, to our world of ugliness, uh, to our world of of hatred and and violence. And he says, here is this kingdom that I am bringing of life and glory and joy. And here's what it means to be blessed by my kingdom. And you know who it's for? It's for those who the world tramples. And it's for those who the world neglects. But that the kingdom is yours. It's a kingdom of love and mercy and forgiveness. How often has Matthew brought us to see the compassion of Jesus? He, he looks at the people so often and he likens them to sheep without a shepherd. He tells these parables which are intended to um, enlighten us, to, to increase our imagination so that we're, we're thinking that his kingdom is unlike any kingdom that we would build. It's unlike any other kingdom that this world knows. Of course, the suffering of Jesus that we've looked at the past few weeks. Jesus abandoned, alone, mocked, crucified. A wise and righteous man unjustly killed at the hands of the wicked. That's what we've seen up to this point. It it would have been a story, or it is a story up to this point, that that would find its way into uh, any great epic poem from the ancient world. Preaches in every age, it's truth against falsehood, it's righteousness against wickedness, it's light against darkness, it's humanity's capacity for evil, even in the face of pure goodness. But that's just this story up to this point. Because, of course, the story is so much more, as we just read, because it establishes a whole new reality, a whole new world that is pressing into our world as it is. Even as we drove to church this morning and we looked out our windows, this new reality is pressing in, it's breaking in, for the simple reason that this king is not dead. He is still reigning. His kingdom is still expanding. I like the story of the greatest Roman emperor, Octavius, Caesar Augustus, probably the greatest leader of men the world has ever known. And it was told that he went on a trip to Alexandria to visit the body of Alexander the Great, arguably the second greatest leader of men. And so he spends time with the body of Alexander in the chapel, and the priests come in and they say, would you like to see the other kings who were buried here? Uh, To which Octavian refused and replied, I came to see a god. I didn't come to see a row of corpses. I like that story because, of course, he did just come see a corpse. Alexander is no god. But Jesus is a god and his tomb is empty. There's no one who could pay a visit to that tomb. The gospel is not the celebration of a martyr. It's not the honoring of a dead man who is ahead of his time. It is the telling of a dead man raised to life of a king who is exalted and reigning even now. And so this end of the story, at least in Matthew, is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. It creates a whole new reality. Uh, Now, what is that new reality that it creates for us? Well, that's what we'll look at right now from from this passage. Um, Who are we? And in particular, I'm speaking to us in this room. Who are we because of this king who now is exalted and reigning? The question I want to ask and answer is, what does the empty tomb mean for me and mean for us? And there are three answers, I think, that the empty tomb provides. First of all, it means the forgiveness of sins. We are a people created and formed by the forgiveness of sins under the authority of King Jesus called to a mission out into this world. The empty tomb means forgiveness. It means authority 
and it means mission. Forgiveness, authority, and mission. The first point we'll look at together is that the empty tomb means forgiveness. We are a people who are formed, who are created by the forgiveness of sins. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at how the disciples had either scattered away at the, at the, at the first sight of things turning south when Jesus is arrested. That's, that's best case scenario. Unfortunately, we also have Peter who dramatically and tragically, even while calling curses down upon himself, he denies Jesus. And yet, Jesus from the beginning has said, this is exactly what will happen. And so in Matthew 26, all of the disciples, including Peter, they all pledge their allegiance to Jesus. We will never abandon you. In fact, we would first die before we will ever abandon you. And Jesus says in 26.32, you will all fall away. And after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You will all abandon me. And yet already, here is this word of forgiveness. See you in Galilee. Even amidst the tragedy of their abandoning Jesus, they have this promise of fellowship. And this promise of fellowship is picked up here in our passage. That promise of meeting his disciples, those who had run away, those who had denied him, those who have forsaken him, it's now being fulfilled. And so how is it being fulfilled? Well, Matthew 28 begins with two Marys. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they come after the Sabbath. They come after the holy day. They come on what so many throughout church history have called the eighth day of creation, which is really beautiful because it's not just a new cycle of weeks beginning. It's not just an out on the first day and we keep going. No, this is a new creation that is dawning. So it's the eighth day of creation. It's not a new week that is beginning. It's a new world that is beginning. So the women come, and they find an angel, and of course this angel is a biblical angel, and so he doesn't look like a precious moments figurine. This is not an angel that you put on on the top of your Christmas tree. Um, This is an angel where everyone who meets this angel replies in the exact same way. Oh no, I'm going to die. The guards were told in verse 4, trembled and just became like dead men. Beautiful irony, isn't it? The man who's supposed to be dead in the tomb is alive. The alive men guarding the dead man, they're acting dead. Beautiful little irony there. But to the women, the angel gives a response that we wonderfully expect from angels when they come to God's people. Fear not. Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. And the women leave the tomb where they and we behold the risen Lord Jesus for the first time. And he says, greetings. It's such a warm embrace. It's not just, hey guys, it's not just hello. It comes from the word rejoice or to be glad. And so I think the best translation would be Jesus saying to these women, I am so glad to see you. And they come and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. And then Jesus gives them instructions. Do not be afraid. And listen to this, because in this brief, brief sentence, we have the heart of the gospel. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is no morality story. This is not about be like this cast of characters. Don't be like that cast of characters. It's about cowards and deniers and those who are 
lost in despair, being called brothers by their elder brother, Jesus. This is not a morality story. It's better. It's a grace story. This is life-changing mercy. This is grace upon grace. Jesus says, go tell my brothers. He doesn't say, go tell the failures. Go tell the cowards. Go tell the weak. That's who we are. We are so quick to point out flaws, maybe especially in the church. Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this deficiency? Have you seen how he or she hasn't quite pulled it together like I have? And here is Jesus, the perfect one, the betrayed one. And he says, go tell my brothers. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Hebrews 2. And I realize it just preaches this whole scene to us. Hebrews is likely a sermon, so it makes sense that it's preaching. In Hebrews 2, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And this line right here, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, the end of the psalm, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The last words of Jesus on the cross were from the same exact psalm, but at the beginning of Psalm 22. The very last words that we have heard from Jesus were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes the place of sinners to gain them as brothers and sisters. Beloved, Jesus took your place to gain you as a brother. He took your place to gain you as a sister. If you are wondering if God could ever love you, and I certainly insist we all must ask that if we understand our sin before God and his greatness, if we ever wonder if our sins are too great, if we ever wonder if we are, we're far too lost, we are far too gone, the empty tomb means it's never too far to turn back. Because the empty tomb means forgiveness before anything else. The resurrection story for every follower of Jesus is the forgiveness story. The empty tomb is where we move from the, being the guilty to the forgiven. It's where we move from our shame to being those who are loved. The empty tomb means forgiveness. Secondly, the empty tomb means authority. We are created, we are formed uh, by the forgiveness of sins under the authority of King Jesus. Now we've looked at some of this already, but how do the women respond when they, when they come in contact with Jesus? They worship him. And how does Matthew describe this visually? They grab his feet. And so what's happening is, is Matthew is making it so clear for us as we, as we think about who Jesus is and what kind of king he is, what kind of authority he has. The angel says, I know who you're looking for. And notice that he doesn't say you're looking for the eternal son of God. He says you are looking for Yeshua, the crucified one. And when they behold him, he says, I'm so glad to see you. And they respond by falling before him and grabbing his feet. And these details, his name, this is Jesus the crucified one. They're grabbing his feet. And it's all just reminding us who, who is being worshipped. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's a man. 
It's the crucified one. It's the one that we can grab. I mean, in Western culture, going all the way back to the ancient world, there is a typical trope when it has to do with ghosts, which is that ghosts don't have feet. Think of Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? He kind of wanders through the air. Because why, why feet? What do feet mean? Feet plant us on the earth, right? Feet are, are limiting to us. We can only live our lives um, one foot in front of the other. And they grab Jesus' feet. What's that communicating? He's a man. He's not a ghost. And so the one who has authority, who will soon speak to that authority, is Jesus, the guy they knew, the guy they saw hanging on a cross, the guy they could touch. It's, it's 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And this time Jesus says, first to the Marys, do not be afraid. The natural response before angels is fear, so, uh, so is the same response before the presence of God. And they worship him and he receives it. And you, you, are, you are free to reject Jesus Christ as God. Uh, most people who hear this message reject that Jesus is God. But the only Jesus that we have preached to us from his word, the only one we are acquainted with, is one who receives worship. It's one who is divine. And so you either reject him or you worship him as God. The pastor and, and New Testament scholar John Stott in the last century wrote, nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. And we see this dynamic in play in chapter 28. We see the women who, who cast themselves on Jesus in worship. And then in verses 11 through 15, we have this brief interlude of the guards who say, this is what happened, and the chief priests tell them, no, that didn't happen. Um, what's the amount of money you're looking for to make sure this stays on the down low? It's like the Godfather, right? And, and if you stick with me, I'll make sure even Pilate is dealt with, and you'll be fine. So even in our passage, we have this illustration of the stark contrast of what Jesus brings out of men and women. We have two missions happening at the same time. We have the women bringing the news of Jesus to the disciples, and then we have the mission of the guards and the mission of the chief priests. And then we come to Galilee, where the book concludes. They're on a mountain. Mountains are typically important in the Bible. Moses was on Mount Sinai. Jesus is the better Moses who commissions a new people of God. And we read that when Jesus comes there, the disciples worship him. But some doubted. That word for doubted could also be translated as hesitated, and I think that's preferred. Because some of the disciples, they act like the women. They, they, they probably went up to him and just grabbed him, and they, and they worshiped him, and maybe they grabbed his feet. But some acted differently, some hesitated. Why? Well, presumably, some of them struggled to believe that Jesus was before them. But let me suggest this. Maybe some didn't want him back. Because they realized they were covered with their shame. And they realized they were just covered with guilt. And they were covered with embarrassment. And seeing Jesus would just remind them of their failure. And the message, of course, is that Jesus overcomes that. Because the first message of the empty tomb is the forgiveness of sins. Really, finally, truly, the forgiveness of sins. Just a beautiful reminder of the realism of this, of this scene. 
You can imagine those who were there as, as they're, they're writing this down, as the tradition is, is building with all of these eyewitnesses and all of the disciples are saying, and I, and, and I didn't even want to believe it. But he's so good and he was there. I doubted at first. I hesitated at first. But then eventually, yes, I worshiped him. And then Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So many alls, right? That's the point. All authority, all nations, all that I've commanded you, I am with you always. Now we're here in the last week in Matthew uh, and I want to pull the thread of Jesus' authority that I've pulled before because we see it come to a beautiful conclusion. Maybe you'll remember, you'll track with me when I start talking about it if you've been with us the past few weeks. It begins here in Matthew 4. Jesus is in the wilderness tempted by Satan. He's brought up to a high point, probably a vision. And Satan says, these are all of the kingdoms of the word, world. Just say the word and, and they belong to you. You have the authority. And of course, Jesus clings to the word of his father and he rejects the temptation. Matthew 16, um, who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because you see what flesh and blood cannot see. But I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter says, may that never be, no. And Jesus reserves his harshest rebuke that he will ever speak in the, New Test in, in the Gospels. And he says, get behind me, Satan. I've heard this before. You want me to have the authority. You want me to have the reign apart from suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is now holding the cup of suffering. And he's asking his father if there's any way uh, to, to do this without holding this cup and drinking this cup to the dregs. Will you remove this cup from me? But he still pursues the father's will. And so it's fitting in this final scene. Jesus has suffered Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been resurrected. And what does he say? All authority is mine. All authority has been given to me. And it's not just the kingdoms of this world. It's everything. The earth, above the earth, under the earth. It's Ephesians 1. Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. In Philippians 2, Jesus empties himself by taking the form of a servant, even going all the way to death, and therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' universal lordship and kingly reign demands a universal mission. And this is where we'll conclude. The empty tomb means forgiveness under the authority of Jesus. He now has that authority, not just over earthly kingdoms, but in the age to come and, and over all things in heaven. And then he calls us to mission. I mentioned before, this is not a morality story. It's better. It's a grace story. And grace doesn't leave us where we are. It changes us. Grace equips, grace transforms, and grace creates. And so the forgiven ones are the sent ones. The first missionaries of the risen Christ can't be overlooked. We need to pay them some respect and, and, and give them our admiration, which is the Marys. 
couple of weeks ago when we looked at the crucifixion, uh, I did skip past the passage at the end where it says there were these three women who just looked on. They never abandoned Jesus. They were always there from the beginning to the end. And on the first day of the week, who finds the tomb empty? Of course, it's women. And I, I hope you've, you've heard Easter sermons that celebrate the fact that it, women are the first eyewitnesses. Why would you depend on the testimony of women whose um, testimony was inadmissible in a first century court, and yet they're the ones who first see Jesus? Because it happened that way. Because it's true. And the Marys here, they're met by the angel who tells them to look around the tomb, a model of faith. The angel says, look around, analyze, investigate, and then go proclaim the gospel to the disciples. The women are the first to model the mission for all of us, to worship Christ and then proclaim his goodness. St. Augustine has a beautiful line about this, how the gospel, it restores, it redeems all things. And so he talks about in paradise, it was a woman who gave the word of death to her husband. But here, to the church, it's the word of the women who give words of life to the church, the disciples. The gospel flips, it, it, it fixes, it restores all that is dead, all that is broken. And so Jesus meets with his disciples on the mountain and he commissions them. Because the empty tomb means mission. He sends out 11 disciples, which is, I think, a pretty powerful number because um, 12 is what we'd expect. 12, of course, is the fullness of Israel. 12 is the fullness of the tribes. 12 is the creation of a new church. But Jesus sends out 11. At this point, it's 11 because it's imperfect. Jesus sends out a ragtag group of imperfect, fallible, even incomplete disciples to do his perfect work. And so what does that mission consist of? Making disciples of all nations to bring people into the school of Jesus, to bring people to the feet of the master, to bring men, women, and children to Jesus because that is where they can find their hope and their joy and their peace. Uh, one pastor described this kind of work in a way that I'll never forget. Our job, and this is particularly my job, but you all share in this job, is to bring people to Jesus and leave them there. And that's a good word because many have talked about how this is a humble task. Jesus does not say, go into the nations and convert a bunch of people. Go into the nations and change everything about creation. Go into the nations and change their hearts and their minds. He says, bring them to the feet of the master. Get them into the school of Jesus and let God get, the, get to work. Bring them to the school of Jesus and let God get to work. Baptize them in God's name. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, give them new names. Baptism is kingdom transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. As Dale Bruner puts it, disciples become the beneficiaries and children of the Father. We become the siblings of the Son, and we come into possession of the Spirit. And this is our mission as the church. We have a unique message to the world, and we are all recruited to share in this message that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and with the Apostle Paul, we can say with full integrity of whom I am the chief, because I know myself, and I know my heart, and I know my will, and I know my desires. And we're to teach the way of Jesus, that strength and wisdom are found in the way of the cross, 
that our real enemies are sin and death and the devil and our neighbors are to be forgiven and our neighbors are to be loved because we remember that in ourselves we are enemies of God who have been brought near by his reconciling blood. To teach the nations all that I have commanded you that the kingdom of God requires a righteousness that far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. It far surpasses the irreligious moralism that is found everywhere. It far surpasses the religious moralism of every generation who who repeats the damnable lie that God uh, accepts you and approves you and, and, and approves of you and loves you because of what you do. Because of what you produce. Instead, of a, a, a far more beautiful, fuller righteousness is required and supplied by Jesus alone. To bring people to the easy and light yoke of Jesus, this is everything. This is our charter as the people of this king and as citizens of his kingdom. This is our commission. And every single age, every single generation of the church, ours up, notwithstanding in the least bit, we have to battle against the church becoming like a box of Cracker Jacks. We hide the treasure of the gospel under a bunch of stale caramel corn. A lot of different caramel corns that we do that. We, we bring people to the way of Jesus and we baptize them, but that gets lost in a sea of political activism of both the right and the left. All the nations suddenly becomes my nation. Peripheral doctrines become key central doctrines. A longing for the way things were or a longing for change makes us impotent to address the way things are. And I like Cracker Jacks okay. And if you're in the mood, they taste fine, but they never satisfy. But this is the treasure. This is the treasure that satisfies. So how will Matthew bring this gospel to an end? What will be a satisfying ending to this work? And he finds it. He finds a satisfying ending. Because the empty tomb means mission, but it's mission in the grace and power of Jesus himself. The last sentence, and behold, listen, pay attention. I am with you always to the end of the age. In the first chapter of Matthew, we're told who's coming. It's Emmanuel, it's God with us. And the very last words of the book are a big, bold, heavenly yes and amen to that reality. God is with us, and he goes with us, and he's with us to the end of the age. And that word is the empowering word of hope and of joy and of satisfaction. Because Jesus, in effect, tells us what we all need to hear, that we will make it. Let's pray. Lord, this is a kind of passage from Scripture where if if we've been around for for any time at all, uh, we've heard similar messages. Uh, Even when church attendance can um, falter through seasons of our lives, we, we probably make that trip on Easter. And we hear one more proclamation of, of the good news of the empty tomb. And so, Lord, what we ask of you this morning is that you would help us to believe it, help us to be shaped by it, help us to be formed by it. 
so that in this world that is passing away, we could plant our feet on that which is enduring, on your better kingdom, because we have such a better king who even now reigns and is exalted. And Lord, with anticipation and with hope, uh, we long for your kingdom to be established in full. Because where else do we find the words of life? Lord, build us up in the confidence that you go with us to the end of the age. Father, I pray for those who uh, maybe don't know you this morning. I pray for those who um, don't believe that you are the risen and exalted king who reigns over all things. Lord, I pray that you would create faith. Lord, I pray that they and we would all see um, the incomparable goodness and beauty of this particular kingdom and of Jesus, our King. Uh, there's nothing else like it in the world, and there's nothing else like it in the world to come. So, Lord, would you do that work in all of our hearts? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.